So I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in 1 Peter 2, verse 10, and then we'll continue reading with Hosea chapter 1. Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take to yourself a wife of adultery and have children of adultery, for the land commits great adultery by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for it shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Playing off of the work of an old English poet, G.K. Chesterton wrote this, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the wit of G.K. Chesterton, and I know we're just getting settled in, so I'm going to say that one more time. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to think. That is to say that for the person who does not believe in God, for the person who gives him little thought, there is a great irony to gratitude. Because when those in a secular society feel exceedingly thankful for a new job or for a clear cancer scan or for something as simple as the fall weather, Who do you thank if there is no God? You see, I think Chesterton is trying to tell us two things this morning in a way only his wit could prove. The first is this, that gratitude has no place in a world without God. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of gratitude that is uh, just etiquette. You know, where we just, we feel compelled to say thank you out of a sense of politeness. No, I'm talking the kind of gratitude that is a deep sense of ethic. The kind of gratitude that goes deep to our souls and causes us to look at the world differently. 
There is no God, there is no gratitude like that. To say it another way, if we refuse to be grateful, it reveals that somewhere deep down in our souls, we have refused the grace of God. And this was true from the people of Israel, wasn't it? They had been rescued from Egypt, redeemed from slavery, saved from oppression, even genocide. And they found themselves as sojourners wandering in the desert and they were complaining. And though they knew that they had been promised a land, they became fearful of the future and they forgot what lie behind them. They forgot what they had left. They had forgot what all that God had done. And so they cried out, wouldn't it be better for us just to go back to Egypt? In other words, wouldn't it be better for us to return to slavery? And so it is with us, isn't it? On our sojourns. When we find ourselves wandering in the desert of life, when we look at our circumstances and life's disappointments and our sin, things that didn't happen according to plan, and we find ourselves despondent and cynical, we wonder, God, where are you? What have you done? We wonder, wouldn't it just be better if we went back? Wouldn't it be better if we just went back to our slavery? I don't know if you know this, but Webster defines ingratitude this way. It is forgetfulness for kindness received. And gratitude is a kind of cynical forgetfulness. We forget all of the goodness and grace that the Lord has done. But you see, there's a flip side, I think, to what Chesterton said. He said it himself. He said that the opposite is true, and that's this. The Christian has all the world to be thankful. You see, the greatest moment for those who believe in Jesus Christ is when they are overwhelmingly thankful. As Christians, gratitude is the essence of all that we believe. It's the essence of our worship. It's the essence of who we are. So this morning, I think we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of who we were in our sin and who we are now in Jesus Christ. We need to remember, because if ingratitude is forgetting kindness, then gratitude begins with remembering. Remembering the kindness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be called to remember in three ways this morning. Not only from the voice of Peter and his letter, but also the story behind the letter. It's our story as well. The story of Hosea. In his story, we see our story of salvation, our story of rescue. And we'll be reminded of God's grace and goodness and kindness in three ways. First, we'll be reminded of God's faithfulness. Second, we will be reminded of God's judgment. And third, we'll be reminded of God's grace. Because as we remember the kindness and goodness of God to us in our own story of rescue, we will see why the essence of Christian faith is gratitude. So first, we must remember God's faithfulness. Peter says this, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are not Peter's own words, not original to him. No, he is actually quoting the prophet 
Hosea. In fact, it's a capstone of a series of quotes where Peter is attributing all of these different identity markers to Israel, to the church. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of its own possession, all of these originally given to the people of Israel. Now he's given to the church and all of this leads up to this moment, this point where he says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It's the prophet Hosea. Hosea begins in this way, Hosea 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Now I know that's the way that almost every prophet begins, but we can learn a lot about Hosea just from this one verse. And the first is this, Hosea is just another way to say Hosea. It's how we pronounce that Hebrew word, Hosea. That's how you would say Hosea in Hebrew. Now, Hosea is related linguistically to the word Joshua. It's just a shorter way to say the word. The same Joshua who led God's people into the promised land. Hosea or Joshua means salvation in Hebrew. And so we learn a lot about Hosea and his calling just from his name. But we also see that it says the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Now, that's how every prophet is called in the Bible. But what was so different and so unique about Hosea is that God called Hosea not just to speak prophecy. No, God called Hosea to live prophecy with his life. And so in verse 2, we see this. When the word of the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take to yourself a wife of adultery and have children of adultery for the land commits great adultery by forsaking the Lord. Rather than just speak prophecy, God called Hosea to go and to marry an unfaithful, promiscuous adulterer named Gomer. And not only was her life a life of adultery and unfaithfulness in her past, but she would remain unfaithful even in marriage to Hosea. And so why would God do this? What is God trying to teach us through Hosea's life? Hosea's life would become a living testimony that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. You see, you could say that from start to finish, the Bible is a story about a marriage. Not a marriage between a husband and wife, but a marriage between God and his people. The Bible begins with a marriage, the union between Adam and Eve. Jesus' very first miracle, do you know where it was? It was at a wedding. When he began his earthly ministry, it started at a wedding. The Bible tells us in the end, in the book of Revelation, that when Christ returns, he will return as a bridegroom coming for his bride. That's you and that's me, his people, the church. And so it makes sense that when we sin, the Bible describes sin not just as immorality, or doing something wrong, but it actually describes it in this way, that when we sin, it's as if we were committing spiritual adultery. That when we sin, we're not just breaking a set of rules, we're actually breaking God's covenant relationship with us. We're breaking a vow. We are aligning ourselves with some other God other than him. We are saying that we love those things more than him. And so our idols beckon us, they woo us, they call us to be unfaithful to our God. 
We are just like Gomer. We are adulterous. We are wanderers. We are unfaithful. But though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. We see this so clearly in baptism this morning. From the beginning to the end, God is faithful. And it's his faithfulness that leads to justice. God is faithful. Faithful in his goodness and faithful in his judgment. The second thing we must remember about God is that he is just. We must remember his judgment. Now, I doubt that many of you are going to be sitting at the Thanksgiving table on Thursday and thanking God for his wrath. And I understand that. Wrath is not a popular thing to be thankful for. But what I want you to understand this morning is you cannot understand God's faithfulness without understanding his judgment. We would not say that an absentee father who fails to discipline his children is faithful, would we? And in the same way, a God without judgment is not faithful, is apathetic. And so we must remember that, yes, God is faithful, but he is also just. So look with me, verse 4. The Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. We are told that Hosea and Gomer had three children, and each child was named something different. Just like Hosea's name was significant, the names of his children was significant. Each child given a different name, a different sign of God's judgment for sin. And so Gomer conceives and has a son, and God calls Hosea to name him Jezreel. Why? Because in just a little while, God would uh, judge the house of Israel. He would break their military might and their strength. And he would destroy the house of Israel in a valley, the valley of Jezreel. Now, the second two children and their names hit a little bit closer to home for us. In verse 6, we're told that Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say that she bore him a daughter. It just says that she bore a daughter. In other words, we believe that Hosea's next two children actually aren't his, at least not by blood. They are a reminder of Gomer's constant unfaithfulness. And so the judgments given to these two children are not just for Israel, but they are for us as well. They take on a deeper meaning The Lord says, call her name, no mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. So if Jezreel isn't a harsh enough name for a little boy, here we have a little girl whose name is no mercy. Why? Because God cannot have mercy for sin. He cannot overlook it. That does not make him faithful. He cannot just say, don't worry about it. It's fine. No, in the constant disobedience, our constant unfaithfulness, he must punish sin. And so he says, on you, I will have no mercy. But even in the midst of that, we get a little glimpse, a little glimmer of hope. Verse 7 tells us that he will one day have mercy on the house of Judah. The line of Judah through his son, Jesus Christ, who does not come to save with a bow, or sword, or horsemen, or through war, but through his own precious blood. 
Now, after Gomer had weaned no mercy, she gave birth to a third child. That child, Hosea is commanded to name, not my people. And this is perhaps the most staggering judgment of all. Not my people. For you are not my people, he says, and I am not your God. Throughout the Bible, God's vow to us is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so in naming us in judgment, not my people, he is essentially saying this. It's an indictment. It's an indictment that you have forsaken your vow. You have forsaken your vow. You are no longer my people. The worst judgment that God could possibly give us is to allow us to be consumed with our idols. To just leave us be. To allow us to go on committing adultery against him, being unfaithful with all of these different things, aligning ourselves with so many different gods of this world. And in doing so, cutting us off, allowing these idols to devour us from the inside out. You are not my people, God says. So what does judgment have to do with gratitude? How on earth could we be thankful for that? When we wrestle with God's judgment, we begin to understand what the cross is really all about. That on the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sin and the judgment of God that we could have life. The last thing that we need to remember, if we're going to be grateful, is this. We need to remember God's grace. Verse 10 begins with a great word. One of the best words in the Bible. It's the word yet. Yet the number of children shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it's said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one head. The head who Peter would later refer to as the cornerstone, the stone that the builder has rejected, the stone that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then comes this amazing proclamation of grace, Hosea 2 Verse 1, I want you to hear these words proclaimed for you because of Jesus. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Do you hear it? Do you hear the voice of Peter saying, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You see, Peter is saying, you had a name. You had a name. Because of your sin, because of your adultery, because of your unfaithfulness to God, you had a name. It was a name of judgment. Your name was no mercy. Your name was not my people. But you now have been given a new name in Jesus Christ. You are God's people. You have received mercy. You see, the name Hosea is related to another Hebrew name. It's the name Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus. Jesus Christ 
is the greater Hosea, the one who fulfilled Hosea's prophecy with his own life. He came and pursued an unfaithful bride. That's you and that's me. And he did so to the end. And though we are unfaithful, he is faithful still. Though we have forsaken our vows to him, he has remembered his vow to us. Though we have denied Jesus Christ, just like Peter did, he has not denied us. And so he went to the cross and he bore our judgment. He became the name, no mercy. And he became the name, not my people, so that we could have mercy, so that we could be God's people. This is grace. This is what grace is. That because of the goodness and mercy of God, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die and to rise again, that all who believe in him would have life. What do you do with grace like that? The only thing we can do to receive it with open arms, with gratitude. To receive the grace of Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Last year, the New York Times, David Brooks, wrote this about gratitude. He said, gratitude happens when some kindness exceeds expectation, when it's undeserved. Gratitude, he said, is a sort of laughter of the heart that comes after some surprising kindness. There is no kindness more surprising, no kindness more undeserved than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so this Thanksgiving, I ask you, are you grateful? Are you overwhelmed with the grace of God to the point that you are filled with gratitude? Or do you find yourself weary by the sojourn? Weary by the journey, forgetting what God has done in your past, fearful what might lie ahead. Do you need reminding? Have you forgotten all that God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps do you need to hear it for the first time? He is faithful. He is gracious and he is just. And he has made a way. He died and he rose again for you that he could draw you to himself and have mercy on you, that you could become his people. So remember, remember who you were. Remember who you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now receive God's mercy with thanksgiving. Once you were not a people, but now know what it means to become a people of gratitude. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would do just that, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, a deep kind of gratitude that comes with being overwhelmed by your goodness, by your love, and by your grace. Father, thank you for being faithful when we've been faithless. Thank you that in your justice, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. And thank you for the grace. Lord, may we leave this place more changed and conformed to the image of your son because of that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.